Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome to the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding. We are now departing present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, I had the pleasure of sitting down this week to chat with my good friend Jordi Alonzo, who is currently a grad student at the University of Missouri. I hope you all enjoy this episode and I will speak to you next time. So Jordi, so I know you have a background in English. I'm really, really curious. How did you develop your interest in classics? Because uh, I know you really like fawns. So, you know, tell me a little bit about that. So, well, thanks, Lexi. I was an English major in, in college and then got my uh, MFA, Master of Fine Arts in Poetry after that. Now I'm at the University of Missouri getting my PhD in English. Ever since I was little, I really, really enjoyed mythology. And as someone who grew up speaking both English and Spanish at home, ended up learning learning French at school as my actual like second language I learned and then studied French attuned to the fact that, you know, the Greeks and the Romans spoke these languages that were not languages we spoke anymore. You know, modern Greek accepted. Eight-year-old me had no idea. Long story short, right, I was like interested in mythology and whatnot. And then when I went to college, discovered that like English majors were, were a thing. I went to Kenyon College and our English program is rather renowned. I ended up sort of focusing more on English, but I did still take a lot of classics courses. You know, once you sort of got into the the classics rhythm and you discovered, you know, hey, these classes are amazing. What was it about fawns specifically that you were like, oh, I have to study these? Because, you know, I I feel like that's not really, I definitely think you're the first person I met who just was like, oh, I I need to study this. Sure. That's a funny story, actually. My best friend, in college, we, we've been best friends. One day we were just chatting. We, we'd meet up for tea or coffee or whatever after a long day of being an undergrad. She basically said that she was a nymph and then one thing led to another and it was like, well, I hang out with you a lot. What creatures, right, hang out with nymphs a lot? Well, fawns. I mean, on, you know, on our phones, I'm on her phone, I'm fawn, and on my phone, she's nymph. From there, I started just sort of looking up 
poems to send her that mentioned nymphs and fawns. So this was literally just going on, you know, wiki source or some sort of repository <laughs> of literature. And I started noticing that, especially in the 19th century, everyone, what major poets, minor poets, poets I'd never heard of, what are they doing? They're writing about fawns or they're writing about nymphs first it was just sort of like poems I would send to Mara just because like oh look and we started coming up with this sort of like personal mythology I jokingly say oh I'm a fawn so I do x right you're a nymph so you do y there were these little bits and pieces in published poems in the 19th century that backed up these fantastical ideas that we'd come up with. One of the has stuck in my head for the, for the last few years is nymphs and fawns aren't human, so their blood must be like colors, right? Like being silly. Then there's this, he wrote a verse drama called Nyctalop, late 19th century, right? And he's got this line, fawn is like, you know, dying in the forest or whatever and his blood is purple. We'd been like playing around with color symbolism and I used to tell, you know, I'd tell her all the time, oh, your heart is purple. Personal mythology of, not, not, not that it was like foundational to the friendship ideas we just made up one day. And then we kept having those ideas be reinforced. I said, well, look, um, I was applying to grad school at that point. And I said, well, I don't really know what, just, what, what I'm going to write my dissertation on, right? Again, kind of jokingly. It was like, well, you've been hitting these things we'd made up corroborated by the historical record. Like, not, not that it's a historical record and I'm like Schliemann trying to, you know, <laughs> dig out Troy. But it was like our personal historical poetic record was being reinforced by these creatures. So we were like sort of just joking around that we had ancestral memory. Fawns have weird colored blood. Nymphs do this. It's a really long story. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's really fun and really interesting to see, you know, really sort of how and why people fall into these really niche sort of categories, because it really is a, a very niche branch of study and an even more niche branch, you know, profession. Mm -hmm. After you knew that you wanted to study this, though, you know, how did you go about looking for a program? Um, because I think so much of the issues that a lot of us who love any type of ancient field find is that not a lot of schools either offer a program that kind of mm -hmm. services our own needs, or if there is one, you know, they, they tend to be at institutions like Harvard, Brown, Hopkins, yeah. UCLA, so very exclusive places. Did you did you have trouble kind of finding a, a spot for you? Did you look specifically for a program, you know, that would let you study um, these fawns? Or did you kind of say, oh, you know, I, I, I'm just going to go to a program and I'll, I'll carve out my own spot there? Sure. Well, I figured at that point, I wasn't really sure how to sell the idea. Hey, random English program. You don't know me. Uh, let me do this thing. I could not name Scott. You know, I wasn't going to say I'm following in such and so-and-so's footsteps because last I checked, I was kind of blazing my own trail. I I just applied to English uh, English programs and I was like, I'll study 19th century 
poetry, both American and British. What I later learned was called transatlantic 19th century poetry. And, you know, one thing led to another. And then once you, like, once I got to Mizzou and I got to know professors, I kept, you know, when we read things in seminars, I'd be like, oh, do you, do you all know that this poet we just read has like a nymph poem? Let me just gush about the nymph poem in my seminar paper and during seminar, right? So that like kind of like believed myself to be a nymph scholar in training before everyone else did. And then when they were like, oh, this nymph or this fawn showed up, even if I wasn't in that class, they'd maybe, you know, email me and say, hey, did you, like, we just found this nymph, right? And as since you're the nymph person, we were behooved to, to let you know. <laughs> so, uh, does that answer, uh, does I, that answer your question? Yeah, I think that's great because it, it, it kind of mirrors what a lot of us did, I, I feel. You know, mm. I, I wasn't set on exactly what thing I wanted to study, but I feel like a, a lot of people, unless they know, because they either got lucky they had a parent or a family friend mm-hmm. who was in one of the ancient fields or maybe they you know watched a professor yeah. and just learned from tv but a uh-huh. lot of us kind of seem to sort of almost back our way into classics or, or whatever mm-hmm. field it is so you almost kind of stumble in very happenstance like it's a almost like yeah. a mistake and then you find yourself and you're like oh Oh, you know, I did not know this was a thing, but I'm so glad I'm here. You know, so I, I deeply, deeply feel that, you know, because it, it happened to me as well. I uh, I yeah. came to Mizzou as an anthropology major um, just because oh. I didn't know, go study ancient Greece. All I knew was I hey. love ancient Greece and I want to go study it. Um, and so, you know, that first time that I went and talked to the advisor, she basically started and was like, okay, so tell me what, uh, what do you, what do you want to study? What do you want to do? Cause I'm going to help you make your class schedule. So everything that I proceeded to describe to her, she had this look on her face where she was like, oh, what? So then, you know, I was like, she looks very confused. That's not a good sign. So eventually she, she told me, um, that's nice. Uh, what you want to do, but we can't actually help you do that here. We're a little more broad and you have to take all these classes that it doesn't sound like you'd enjoy. What you're looking for is our classics department. And then she proceeded to write down and give me the name and email of the advisor and then met with him the next week. And I, you know, I asked all the questions and then boom, like that's what I wanted. So I feel like, you know, a lot of us have that kind of experience where we're like, oh, Okay, well, one way or another, we end up where we want to be. Uh, how we get there is very different, which, which right. I love. What do you think, you know, we could maybe do to make these programs a little more accessible to people just because, you know, it's so mm-hmm. hard to figure out something exists, you know? Like, what is there anything that would have right. made it easier for you to find classics? Right. Well, I, so up until now, I've just sort of mentioned how I was in the English department, right? I'm a, I'm a student in the English department, I, you know, part of the English Graduate Student Association and so on, taking a, a creative writing English class right now. And I just started taking, taking classics courses. So I was like, I need to know 
not just a little bit of ancient Greek. I'd had some Latin before in undergrad. And I was like, clearly the Romans got their nymphs, right? From, and their fawns from the Greeks. And I thought, you know, what's one more language? I already speak English, Spanish, and French. And my Latin was bad, but it was there. I'm like, let's just add another language. Like you said, kind of backed my way into the classics department and now, but sometimes people are a little astonished when I say, oh no, no, I'm just not, not an interloper in a bad way, right? But like, oh no, no, I, I'm a metaphorical card carrying member of the English department. And actually what I'm, what I'm doing uh, this semester is preparing an application for a master's program in classics. As far as like how classics I think could be more open and more democratic, I think. I think part of it is that we don't always in high school have classics program. You have, of course, you study English, you study math, et cetera, et cetera some foreign language, French, Spanish, Mandarin, whatever, but you don't really study Latin. You don't really study Greek until you get to undergrad. I walked into my first Latin class in undergrad. I was familiar, you know, with how languages work. And like, I knew there were Latin classes, but somebody who isn't already into classics, even if they don't know that classics as a discipline exists. I think a way that we could get more people interested in it is not necessarily by focusing on what they call, you know, the grammar translation method. Like, here's a passage of Aristophanes. You have to parse every single word here and tell me which verbs are in which moods and which tenses, etc. You could introduce people to classics by being like, um, do you guys want to hear about fart jokes that are 2,000 years old? Make fun of philosophers? Well, yes, I would. <laughs> Maybe that shows a bit my uh, childish sense of humor, but we, you know, we read a section this morning where um, these two characters are talking about how Socrates is a really weird human because all he does at the thinkery, right, the academy, all he does at the thinkery is come up with answers to these questions like, do gnats, are they humming when they make that noise? Or are they just like farting their way through life? No spoilers for this 2000 year old play, since it's kind of, you know, scatological humor you know what the answer is there. So, I mean, like, you know, if you read a play or you, you know, you tell the story of Achilles or something like that, and you're like, okay, so there's a story that's been really pivotal to, you know, Western, like, there's a lot of art about it, there's movies, like, if you want to see Brad Pitt shirtless, here's, you know, here's a way you can do that, and you can start there. Yeah, and I think, oh, and I, lo I love how you brought up Brad Pitt and Troy, because that, that segues perfectly into, you know, I think that, you know, in addition to it being so important to really start telling kids and teaching them about classics and all the great philosophers, historians, you right. know, as early as high school, I think it, the added layer of importance here is that so much of classics is embedded in our culture and it's yeah. really spread through, especially, you know, modern pop culture, films. Right. 
TV, you know, books, music even. Right. Um, and so I love that you brought in the, the Brad Pitt um, example because <laughs> the Brad Pitt 2004 Troy just is right. like the most popular example most people can think of. I'm curious though, what other, you know, popular books or, or TV shows or movies can, can maybe you think of that would be kind of a good intro into the ancient world? You know, maybe even if it's not sure. perfectly accurate, for you know the the time it's just it's been we've been brought up with this in our Mm -hmm. culture so you know can you think of you know what were some books or or movies that you saw and you know are either directly an adaptation of an ancient myth or or story or that was based on it i grew up with it was a rather slim hard to cover book it was it was basically like a retelling of like book two and three or something like that of the Iliad catalog of ships and but it was a picture book, not exactly perhaps written for children, right? But it was like this gorgeously illustrated thing. Movies, you know, I mean, I grew up in the '90s, so Hercules. Of course, the Disney movie. I had a crush on Megara. I don't know if that is relevant to this conversation. Or I not. think I think it could be. I think everything that gets you into that world is completely so, relevant. So right. So it like and it wasn't like an oh Meg probably spoke Greek, therefore I must study this, right? But it was the music, the idea that like I've never really been into the war fighty side of. I recognize those are fun things to watch, fun things to to experience. Much more recently, of course, like there's um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is just, I mean, I know we could gush for five hours. And you mentioned, uh, without calling it um, reception theory, sort of that idea, right? And it's it's a sub-discipline of, of classics that I'm actually really interested in, where you not only study the text, But then you go and you read 19th century or 20th century or 21st century things like, you know, Madeline Miller's Song of Achilles, her Circe, Emily Wilson's new translation of the Odyssey, where she translates in iambic pentameter our English version of dactylic examiner, right? And she keeps a one-to-one correspondence for the line. All of that, that's translation. And of course, she's, a, she's an accomplished classicist. She is bringing people who don't sit through the Odyssey or Madeline Miller, right? Sit through the Iliad and read the story of Achilles and modernizing the stories while at the same time keeping, keeping a, a strong link to the, oh, if you want to know more, you know, you can read Homer. Wake Siren Ovid Resung. So it's Wake Siren colon Ovid Resung is the uh, the subtitle. And she takes Ovid's metamorphoses to give some love to the Romans. And she tells stories about all the women and female creatures who were metamorphosed because of non-consensual desire of some god probably, you know, Jupiter. So uh, McLaughlin has a a story that really hit me was the, like her version of the Arachne story. In in Ovid, Arachne is a weaver, a human weaver who is really good at weaving. So Minerva says, oh, you have committed hubris because you said you're like better than I am. And then there's the challenge, like, right, Minerva Minerva, uh, challenges Arachne, 
Arachne's weaving is really good, but you know when you when the goddess of weaving challenges you to the weaving contest, you don't need a poet to tell you how that's gonna end. Yeah. So what McLaughlin does is like she gives Arachne, she gives she gives Daphne really think of any you know classical heroine, and chances are she you can trace her back to the Metamorphoses, right? She gives them agency. And she sets the book. So this could be a story that happens right now, or you could be reading a story about, you know, ancient Corinth. The stories are super short. They're told in like a very contemporary and yet still very poetic. It's not a novel in verse. And it's like a feminist retelling of Ovid, which I really feel like we just need a feminist retelling of pretty much everyone. These are ways to sort of, I think, grapple with, and I I feel like I've kind of gone a little bit off topic here, but classics sometimes I think have, like we've got the perception, right? Classics, an old white upper class man's game. Like think of your stereotypical like Oxford or Cambridge Dawn. So there's this perception we have that a, a friend of mine who is the head of Looper Call, a Latin reading group for women and non-binary folk, put it wonderfully the other day when we were talking. She said, uh, this is Sky Alta, surely. Uh, she said that oftentimes in Latin classes, right, we'll be super focused on the grammar of a particular passage without necessarily thinking of, of the consequences of being hyper-focused on the grammar without considering the context. Example, I'm, there's a non-consensual pursuit on the part of Apollo. He has the hots for Daphne. Daphne did not consent. She, in order to escape, prays to the nymphs of the, I think it's the Alpheus River, if I remember correctly, to save her. And what they do is they transform her into a laurel tree and Apollo now is associated with the laurel because he physically tears her body apart. Same with, you know, same with Pan and Syrinx, the nymph. Pan has panpipes because Syrinx, a nymph, was running away. Same story. She can't get away, so she's like, I need some control. She becomes a bunch of reeds, and then Pan takes her as an attribute because he literally tears her body apart and makes beautiful music by blowing through her body, right? So these are very non-consensual ideas. The, my, my friend was mentioning, right, how like sometimes we're just too hyper-focused on the grammar. Who's the object of that sentence? Oh, it's Daphne, right? Daphne is the one to whom the action is being done. And then we don't stop to talk about the repercussions of using a very non-consensual action and just being like, oh, you know, treating it like a, like a grammatical exercise. Daphne is the object of that sentence. We don't talk about how that makes us feel, right? So you're just reading about these characters being acted upon against their will. It could leave you, it, it could turn you off from classics, right? I think, you know, there's definitely that element where, you know, any number of these stories has the power to turn someone away. Right. But, you know, I think overall, though, almost everything you 
classical history, whether it's mm -hmm. myth, that that's, you know, debatable, but, but, you know, I think we really, it's hard to come up with new things, new ideas. So we, we do try to take the examples were provided, and then we can we can expand them, we can change them a bit, um, but that does not change where they they come from. And so, what you mentioned to this aspect of you have to be careful because while we do have a lot of popular film and literature that could bring someone in, I grew up with uh, the Percy Jackson series, completely a positive experience. I loved mm. it, as did I'm sure many many people uh, all around the world. Yeah, the the aspect of you know influencing us in certain ways that's not just hey, this is a thing, come love it. That is really impactful kind of on the state of the world. What I mean, I guess, by that is because so much of our society is built upon ideology and that comes from a lot of these ancient cultures, looking kind of at how this has influenced modern politics, modern ideology, do you also see some parallels, you know, with some of these ancient stories that you mentioned and how that may sh may have shaped, you know, how our society was was built? Like what ideas maybe come from here teach us, you know, I think of, you know, Aesop's fables which debatably were based on Greek myth first. We use those to teach our children lessons, shaping our idea of what it is to be a good person or what you should or shouldn't do. Yeah, I just want to get in a little bit, you know, about how, how we see this influence us one way or another um, into kind of how we ended up where we are. Right. To, to restate your question to make sure I've got it, you're asking like, how have these ancient societies like influenced us, us today? Yeah. Our ideas, what is beautiful, what government buildings should look like, white marble with ionic columns, right? Or some kind of classical column. We've got that because of the neoclassicist movement in the 18th century, where they were like, those columns and the white marble, like, it looks very august. It makes us feel like Greeks and Romans. Let's build our courthouses, our banks, our etc. Let's build them in that style, which is not how exactly they look when they were in use in, in Rome, in Greece. I'm thinking of like the unfortunate use of like classical imagery by like far right group. They love the fasces, the bunches of arrows tied together where we get, you know, the word fascism. The fasces is unbreakable whereas you could snap one arrow in half. Uh, they love like the ideas of the Roman, like the Aquilae, the Roman eagles that were the standards of the, of the legions, right? Stuff like that. They are like, oh, all the statues are pure white marble. And then they form misguided notions of races, etc. They don't do their research and they don't know that polychromatic art. These marble statues are white now, sure, yeah. But they were once painted, depending on the scholars you, you follow, they were painted in what would seem to us as very garish, bright, primary colors. Yeah, I heard, I think, you know, most of these statues and buildings were like almost psychedelic in, in nature, um, right. which definitely and, shocks everyone I talk to. Right. So, I mean, I, I find it really shocking, but in a, in a good way, right? Because you think you know, and then you realize, I, I went to a, an exhibit last year, back when we could travel, 
at the Kelsey Museum of Art and Archaeology at the University of Michigan. There was a whole exhibit on ancient Greek paint making. So not only did they talk about how the paint was made, but like how it was applied, etc. That really just transformed my understanding of, of Greek art. And the reason I sort of brought up like these, you know, far-right groups is that they're holding up Greece and Rome as these white ideals because the remnant of Greece and Rome in our popular mindset, in our popular culture, are the, you know, the white marble of the Apollo Belvedere or the white marble of the, you know, Venus de Milo, etc. These are white right now, yeah, sure, because they were, you know, weathered. Paint will fall off a statue if you make it rain hard. <laughs> so these ideas are maybe hopefully not held by a large percentage of society, right? But but by a very vocal percentage of society. And I feel like we should fight back against these kind of perceptions. Yeah. And I think that's so fitting. That's so fitting um, because I was literally about to ask you, you know, we do have this kind of scary moment in history where we have a big resurgence of, you know, fascists and, and you know, ultra-nationalist parties and, and these ideologies, they're really coming to the forefront of, of anyone's memory for a very long time. And a lot of them do kind of misappropriate a lot of ancient symbols, especially from, you know, the Greco-Roman world, which as a classicist, I find absolutely so saddening and and whatnot but also i think you know there's that valuable lesson that you know especially people in the humanities and people in classics know which is you really do you should have the full understanding that these were not perfect societies you should understand the nuance that went into this not just the idealized version that a lot of people seem to want to take a hold of so i i truly believe that to, to solve a lot of the the world's problems that we're confronted with it's a very interdisciplinary sort of thing that we're going to do and you know i think that ancient scholars are going to be vital to helping guide modern you know political scientists and economists and whatnot sort of find their way around you know how to implement modern solutions to modern issues but still using history to, to sort of guide to make sure we stay away from hey yeah. this might have already been done so you know kind of with that would you sort of say then that it's almost as important to fund humanities programs, especially in the ancient disciplines, as it would be to fund STEM? Because I know we're right now we're living in this age of everyone's being pushed toward, oh, uh, you know, you'll get a billion scholarships yeah. and discounts, study STEM, because that's so important. We need that. Right. Definitely agree. And, you know, I think STEM is important but i've also i've heard dichotomy between like the humanities on the one hand and stem on the other is a little artificial right you could hypothetically study what a bunch of scholars in alexandria in egypt were doing with the science of their time right we so you could do humanities and focus on on STEM. I do not do that, but I do think that we should definitely fund the humanities, but then instead of thinking of STEM as a separate field, right, all the way over there, we should think of being STEAM-powered. That is to say, adding the A in the middle of STEM there for art. Art in, in the sort of the broadest sense, you can construe it, meaning, meaning the humanity. Medieval, you know, Latin world, the liberal art were 
not poetry and things that we might think of as the humanities, but you had astronomy, rhetoric, mathematics, things like that. And these were the artes liberales, the, the liberal arts, right? The arts befitting free people. Most of those were things we would think of as like science. You've got, you know, linguistics and math and astronomy. But what I'm saying is that, yes, I completely agree. We should definitely fund the humanities and also integrate, like you said, an interdisciplinarity of things where you can be a classicist, you can be an English major, you can be, you know, humanities-based field you want to study, but then feel free to take not only from the other fields in the humanities, to engage with fields outside of them, right? And, uh, and I think that it's so true because, you know, just because you may want to, I, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, oh, well, I, I love studying the ancient world and classic sounds fun, but I can't get a real job. You know, I need to be a lawyer. And can you think of how many different maybe job fields and, and things that would benefit from a, a classics background? Because, you know, my argument is don't be afraid to major in this at the collegiate level because it leads into so many different fields. Um, you okay. know, can you think of any that, that would really benefit from maybe a, if, if you're scared of majoring in it, maybe a, a double major or a minor? Sure. I mean, I think I, you mentioned law. Most terms in law are Latin, pro bono, quid pro quo. What is classics, right? What do we do in classics if not sit with a text and obsess over whether that is a dative of attendant circumstance, ablative of means or whatever in, in Latin, for example. And post-baccalaureate fields encourage attention to detail, whether you're an interior designer or you're going on to law school or you're going on, you don't need to remain in academia after you major in, in classics. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think definitely there's just so many, and, and I think there's too many fields to really be able to pinpoint here and sit and be like, obviously this is so odd because right. classics definitely it's people in so many different ways. It teaches creative thinking, which can be applied to just mm -hmm. everything in life, just creatively for, for you as a person, as your own development. It's, you know, classics is such a, a great journey for everyone that's going to affect everyone mm -hmm. differently. So what I want to do, I love the, the namesake of my podcast, the mm -hmm. poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. My favorite poem. And from what I know of you, it is also one of your favorite poems. I would love it if you would read for us the poem. Mm -hmm. And then just what is the message of this poem? What is it trying to tell us? Sure. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well these passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Beautiful reading. Beautiful. It almost, I swear, I really get so emotional every time this poem is read. But yeah, so this poem evokes such strong imagery and also, you know, subtle messages. What does this poem mean to you? I think being literary Egyptologist myself, I think it shows us that, right, we don't, as scholars of the ancient world, amateurs of the ancient world, lovers of the ancient world, we know that we do not have complete object texts most of the time. Uh, not having the complete version of it doesn't mean that the fragments are not worthy of study, worthy of admiration, worthy of, of being brought back into the present. Not just sort of left in our distant past, but remembered and spoken of and written about in the present. So. Yeah, no, I mean, this poem, it's very complicated. What I love about it most, it doubles a, as a metaphor, both for political power, kind of a reflection of humans' own hubris, you know, and if we look at it from that kind of lens, does it change how we feel about it? Is it like a, a warning? 
almost? Is it an Aesop's fable of sorts where it's, you, you have to read it and then think about its meaning? You know, it's not straightforward. Well, I think it's kind of a memento mori, right? Remember, you will die. Ozymandias says, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And yet his works are gone, right? Presumably the city or whatever it is, is gone and barely his legs have survived and, you know, his face is cracked and physical space away. Yeah, like, don't be too cocky. Time time will get you. Yeah, I... (laughs) Yes, no, definitely. And, you know, I think this poem is applicable to everyone everywhere. When I read it, just because of the unique times that we're living in, I can't help but think of this is such a good message for where we are as a a country, whether you agree with the the current government or not. You know, anyone who knows me uh, would probably know where I stand on this as well. This is, you know, just, it kind of goes into, this is why some of this ancient material so impactful, it's so important. And it always shocks me when I see people who are high up in either government or the world, I'm sure their education was amazing, but because Mm -hmm. don't place emphasis as much on teaching and and reading the ancient materials. And if you do, you're going to read the more stereotypy. Okay, well, everyone loves Achilles. So let's just read the Iliad and the Odyssey. More films and adaptations of these Mm -hmm. things. But when it comes to slightly more obscure tech, you know, Uh I just, I find it very interesting that so many people, especially in the current government, would benefit from reading this poem and I would hope that they would sit and think about its messages because it it really speaks to me I think and I know it speaks to you as well. Let's try to get this podcast up and running so we can send it to Washington then. (laughs) I sincerely hope that more people will find enjoyment and and really Mm -hmm. come because it's fun, come because we get to talk about fun subjects, we get to talk about what we learn from these things. We've got a shirtless Brad Pitt in in Troy. And who doesn't Um, want to talk about that, right? Who doesn't want to talk about that or... I would love to see some sort of adaptation of any of Aristophanes' plays because those are paid such lip service. Be out there somewhere, right? Somewhere. Well, maybe we'll find it. If anyone, if any of my listeners, if any of you listeners out there know of any adaptations, please reach out to me and send them my way because I would love it. But thank you so much, Jordi, for joining me on the podcast today. It was so fun to talk to you. I could talk to you for hours longer. I always enjoy our conversations and I hope that uh, everyone listening to the podcast will enjoy it as well. I will leave some of the links that you may have brought up in the podcast in the show notes. And thank you so much. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 